There was a team um, that we have a team that prays before every gathering. And we were praying together this weekend, uh, just a little while ago, and somebody said they felt like they saw the Lord showing them a basket. And then somebody after that said, um, talked about bruised reeds. The scriptures say that he will not crush a bruised reed. And I felt like the Lord was kind of saying that he's knitting our bruised reeds together into a basket. Um, And so while we were worshiping just now, I was like, Lord, what's in the basket? And I felt like he said the kingdom. Felt like he said it was us. Um, And so if you're a bruised reed this morning, if you think about a way a basket works, when they're woven together, they're stronger. Right? And so, Lord, as we come together in our grief this morning, we want to be a container for all that you have for us. We want to be knit together and woven together in love for one another, the strong and the weak, in this room together. And so, um, Jesus, you said you would give us a comforter, and his name is the Holy Spirit. And so, comforter, would you come? Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. We're going to be in John 11 and Luke 7, but we'll be in John 11 first. In the fall of 1991, Jerry Sitzer loaded his mother, his four children, and his wife of two decades into their minivan for a family trip to rural Idaho. While driving that evening, they were struck head-on by a drunk driver. Jerry's wife, his mother, and his four-year-old daughter died in the collision. In his book, A Grace Disguised, Sitzer writes, A torrent of emotion swept away the life I had cherished for so many years. In one moment, my family as I had known and cherished it was obliterated. The woman to whom I had been married for two decades was dead. My beloved Diana Jane, our third born, was dead. My mother who had given birth to me and raised me was dead. Three generations gone in an instant. He says, that initial deluge of lost slowly gave way over the next months to the steady seepage of pain that comes when grief, like floodwaters refusing to subside, finds every crack and crevice of the human spirit to enter and erode. I thought that I was going to lose my mind. I was overwhelmed with depression. The foundation of my life was close to caving in. In his book, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis reflects on the death of his wife, Joy. He says, no one ever told me that grief feels so like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning, 
I keep on swallowing. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There is a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says. He goes on to say about his experience of grief, it's, it's not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all. But, so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. We find ourselves in a series on inner healing. And we've defined inner healing as experiencing Jesus' joyful, and joy means glad to be with us, his joyful presence and power in the midst of our wounds and in the midst of the places of our pain. And we turn to grief this morning because few things in our life are so tender as grief, so painful. Because grief is a common experience for us. It touches our lives in more ways than we can count. But we also turn to grief this morning because as Lewis notes, when we are in grief, we are at great risk. We are in particular danger of coming to what he calls dreadful beliefs about God. After our third miscarriage, which was on the tail end of a couple of years of infertility, I remember sitting at Nova with a friend who came to live with us for a couple of years. And I remember saying to him, and actually somebody this week has said this exact sentence to me, um, it's not that I don't think God is good. I think he is good, I said. But it's obvious to me that his goodness means something less than I thought it meant. Certainly a dreadful belief about God if there ever was one. We turn to grief this morning because Jesus is the healer who moves toward us in grief. He is, after all, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. So this morning, we're going to meet Jesus, not at one, but at two funerals. The first is in John 11, but first I just want to explore grief for just a couple of moments. Because when we think of grief, when we think of loss, we typically think of death. And death is certainly the chief cause of grief, but it is not the only cause of grief. Grief finds its way into our stories in surprising ways, because there are a lot of losses that we experience as our life goes on. Losses in the midst of which grief comes crashing in. And some of those losses could be um, estrangement or loss of relationship, or even just a difficult marriage, a difficult relationship with a child or a spouse. Financial loss, illness or injury. 
This is a fancy word, relinquish, relinquishment. That means when we give up something good. When we give up something good, we can experience grief when we move across the country. I mean, I remember when we left Chicago to come here, weeping in the car, right? We were taking a better job. We were moving on in our life, but we were leaving behind so much relinquishment. Institutional losses. Um, we call that church hurt or if you were in an abusive environment. If you want to talk about institutional loss, we can talk about the Southern Baptist Convention this week. The death of a pet. The loss of a career. Even in retirement, there can be grief. The loss of a limb. Being unsuccessful in love. Holidays and anniversaries can make grief kind of rise up. Becoming an empty nester. I mean, the list can go on and on. Grief is multifaceted. And it finds its way into our lives in a variety of ways, some more extreme than the others. And here, here's this interesting thing that happens, is when we hear stories of extreme grief, like, say, Jerry Sitzer's, losing a daughter, his wife, and his mother in a moment, uh, when, when we hear stories of that, what we tell ourselves is, well, in comparison to that, my grief isn't all that bad. This is what we do, by the way. This is a Mahoning Valley thing. We, we, we do this thing where we toughen ourselves up by comparing pain, right? I can't complain about my situation because they have it worse, right? That is wrong. I want to just give you permission. If you find that that doesn't really help you, it's not supposed to because it's wrong. Dan Allender and Kathy Lorzell write in their book, Redeeming Heartache, which is a book about trauma. So many of us dismiss our stories of harm because we compare them to worse stories. But we can't compare our stories to understand their severity. We are meant to compare them to Eden, where God creates the world good, no pain, no punishments, no problems. We're meant to compare them to Eden, the picture of perfection. If we allow ourselves to do that, then we'll see the true nuanced aspects of harm and our hearts will be allowed to grieve what should have been and what was instead. We have successfully named five stages of grief, and this was done by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in her 1969 book on death and dying. We've named the five stages of grief but we have no sense, as a culture, of how long grief should last. We don't, therefore, have good cultural resources for helping one another with grief. What we tend to do is pay close attention for about a week, a little less good attention for another week, and move on and kind of just wait for the grieving person to kind of get over it. This is not the case in Judaism. Judaism has a predictable pattern, a ritual that lasts a full year for how we grieve. And I can't get into the fullness of it, but Lauren Winner in her book, Mudhouse Sabbath, explores that process. She says, Judaism understands mourning as a discipline. 
one in which the mourner is not only allowed but expected to be engaged. Rather than asking the mourner to paper over his grief, the Jewish community supports him in mourning. She says, my priest, who is always urging me to pray the despairing book of Psalms, says that Judaism mourns well in part because Jews understand lament. Christians, he says, do not know how to lament. In Judaism, there's a script for how grief works. For the days that you spend up to the burial, for the first seven days after the burial, then the next month after the burial, and then especially in the case of the loss of parents or a spouse the next year. Winner says that the calendar of bereavement that Jewish people have, the calendar of bereavement recognizes the slow way that mourning works, the long time it takes a grave to cool, slower and longer than our zip-zoom internet and fast food society can easily accommodate. Long after your friends and acquaintances have stopped paying attention, after they've forgotten to ask how you are and pray for you and hold your hand, you are still in a place of ebbing sadness. Mourning plateaus gradually. And the diminishing intensity is both recognized and nurtured by the different spaces the Jewish mourning rituals create. In absence of a clear cultural pattern for how we're to handle grief, we tend to just leave people isolated in it. But in contrast to this, we meet Jesus, a Jewish man, moving toward grief. So we're going to look at two funerals. The first is in John chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 38 through 37. In John 11... Jesus arrives at the funeral for his friend Lazarus, a funeral Jesus could have prevented. A funeral Jesus could have prevented. In fact, Lazarus' sister, sisters Mary and Martha ask Jesus to intervene. And by all accounts, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were some of Jesus' closest friends. They ask Jesus to intervene, and Jesus does not. He arrives days after Lazarus has died. And in verse 30, we find this. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus's grave to weep, so they followed her there, and when Mary arrived, she saw Jesus and fell at his feet. She said, Lord, if you had been here, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, that's part of the Jewish mourning ritual, a deep anger welled up within him. And he was deeply troubled. Verse 34, where have you put him? He asked. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him? But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? John 11 is a passage rife with emotions. 
rife with Jesus' emotions. Jesus is angry. He's deeply troubled. He weeps in this passage. And I have taught this passage before. And today, I confess to you that if you've heard me teach it, I have taught it wrongly. I used to teach that Jesus weeps not over Lazarus' death, but over their unbelief. Right? Jesus is weeping, that these people are weeping, because doesn't he know that he can just fix the problem, boom, like that? I used to think that Jesus was weeping over their unbelief. I, I am now convinced that Jesus is weeping over death, because death is always worth weeping over. I'm convinced that Jesus is angry, not because the people that he's taught should know better, but because in the presence, the, the, the very presence of death enrages Jesus. Because death is a monster. Death is an aberration on the good creation that God made. It is always worthy of anger. It is always worthy of our tears. And you better believe if you've wept over death, if you've been angry with death, so is Jesus. Another day, another funeral. Turn with me to Luke 7. Luke 7. Just flip back a book, a few pages. Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. Luke 7. Luke says this, starting in verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain, and a large crowd followed him. A funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. And when the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion don't cry, he said. Then he walked over to the coffin and touched it, and the bearer stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. Then the dead boy sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother, and great fear swept the crowd, and they praised God, saying, a mighty prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people today. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the countryside. Jesus does not crash a wedding, he crashes a funeral. And it's a particularly tragic funeral. The deceased is a young man and his only living relative is his widowed mother. This is a 10 out of 10 crisis in this cultural moment. Women have no rights Women have no voice. Women have no option of gainful employment. The tragedy is that this woman is now looking at the rest of her life alone, vulnerable, afraid she will probably die of starvation and poverty. She is not just burying her son. She is burying her only source of provision and protection. 
Jesus enters the scene and look at where his eyes go first. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, not the dead dude, her, his heart overflowed with compassion and he said, don't cry. Jesus' eyes go not to the dead, but to the, but to the living. And again, profound emotions. His heart overflows with compassion. And that compassion extends to the woman with a loving word, don't cry, a loving word spoken to her before he deals with her problem. Now, pay attention with me for a minute. Steph and I and Preston and Tessa were leading a few people here at Regen through something called a Discovery Bible Study. And a Discovery Bible Study You look at a passage, you answer simple questions. What does it say about God? What what does it say about people? What do I I like about this? What do I I find difficult about this passage? Now here, I'm just going to give you a little right now. We're going to be equipping our whole church in Discovery Bible Studies over the next year. It's going to be a key tool that we want to put in your missional toolbox. And some of you are going to say it's not deep enough. If you sit through a Discovery Bible study and it's not deep enough, it's just because you aren't trying. Because we have had profound conversations around passages just like this one. This is one of the first ones we did together. And what blew my mind as I sat in the text in our fireplace room in our house was how Jesus deals with grief differently than I do. What I do when a person is grieving, what we do as Christians, is we view grief as a moment of instruction. Let me read you all of these passages of Scripture about how death isn't real and how it's just as easy as getting up and walking from one room to the other and um, how the last enemy that shall be defeated in death. And let me read you all that we view it as a time of instruction. Y'all, Jesus doesn't do a Bible study with a grieving person. It's not a time of instruction, it's a time of compassion. And so I would think, oh, let's resolve your grief, lady. Let's just raise the dead and then we'll be fine. But Jesus moves toward her grief before he solves her problem. Do you see that? Right? When when someone you love is grieving... That is not the time to bring out the four spiritual laws and do a Bible study. It is just a time to hug them and hold their hand. There's compassion extended. In these two funerals, we find Jesus. We find that when Jesus encounters death, Jesus is moved. We find that when Jesus encounters grief, he is moved. He is moved to anger on our behalf. He's, he is moved to tears. And he is moved to compassion. If you are grieving today, I want to invite you to see Jesus seeing you in your grief. I want you to see a Jesus who is deeply moved 
by your grief. I want you to see who Jesus really, really is. Because when we are grieving, the danger is that we will come to believe something dreadfully wrong about him. When we are in grief, we are at risk of believing dreadful things about God. When others are grieving, we are at risk of telling them dreadful things about God. As Jesus crashes these funerals, I want you to see him. I want you to see that when we in our grief reach out toward Jesus, when we reach toward the healer, we find a Jesus who doesn't want to talk us out of our grief, but walk us through it. He doesn't offer us a theological lecture. He doesn't even offer us saccharine half-truths. Instead, we find Jesus to be someone whose eyes are drawn to the grieving, who is angry along with us at the very presence of grief in our lives, who weeps with us, who has profound compassion for us, and who in the midst of it all is undeniably, unstoppably, glad to be with us. In our grief, we encounter Jesus' joyful presence. And joy is not, praise God, he's still on the throne. Let's sing another five worship songs. Joy is, he is glad as glad can be to sit there with us. Jesus is better trained at this than we are, a 33-year-old Jewish man who many times in his life, I imagine, sat Shiva seven days of mourning with people. Jesus ain't rushing you. He's glad as glad can be to be with you. We can experience his joyful presence and power in our grief, and in the moments we have left, I just want to explore how. Here's how Jesus extends his healing toward us in our grief. Are you ready? Jerry Sitzer says, I did not get over the loss of my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss into my life like soil receives decaying matter until it became a part of who I am. It is therefore not true, this is amazing, you need to read this book. It is therefore not true that we become less through loss unless we allow the loss to make us less, grinding our soul down until there is nothing left but an external self entirely under the control of circumstances. Loss, he says, can also make us more. In the darkness, we can still find the light. In death, we can also find life. How does Jesus heal our grief? He just saddles up next to us and walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death for precisely as long as it takes. He leads us through it 
because he is a good shepherd. But he does not rush. Nor, I think it's important to say, nor does he try to slow us down. Right? Nor does he have some sort of weird sadomasochistic thing about seeing us sad. He, he, he walks exactly as fast as we would like to walk through that process. Another way to say it is that the only way out is the way through. The only way out is the way through. And somehow, along the way, we don't get over it. I like what Sitzer says. It somehow gets absorbed into the fabric of our life. Dare I say woven. Not only into the basket of our life, but even the basket of our community. Right? Because Scripture says that we can comfort others with the comfort God gave us when we were suffering and when they are suffering. When they are suffering something like we've suffered, we can comfort others with the same kind of comfort we've received. Then we somehow are knit together into this basket, aren't we? And I like how Sitzer says that it is possible for grief to make us less, but it is possible for us to become more, right? Over time, our three losses have been woven into the fabric of who we are. An undeniable and yet, uh, an undeniable part of our story and yet one that shapes the way that we move toward others. And, and through our years of processing, something happened. I, I stopped saying, I stopped saying, I believe that God is good. It just must mean something less than I thought it means. And I actually started to say, I still believe that God is good. It just must be more than I understand it to be. Somehow, in our grief, as, as it is absorbed into our life, we start to understand that there are edges around the goodness of God that we don't fully grasp. Dimensions to that love that is high and wide and broad and deep, that surpasses the, knowledge, the full knowledge, that there's something about that that takes our losses up into itself. Right? And somehow, our grief becomes part of God's own story. He collects all our tears in a bottle. They're very precious to him. And somehow, it, it becomes part of his own life. These are the things that Jesus died for. Our grief is why he died. And one day we will enter a place, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, we will go to a place. We will enter a kingdom where all sad things become untrue. But for now, we find a Jesus who weeps with us, who joins us in our anger, who has compassion toward us, and who wants to teach us to lament. To lament.
the Psalms, that big old chunk in the middle of your Bible, 150 of them, somewhere between one half and two thirds, uh, somewhere between a third and a half of those are, are Psalms of lament, songs of sorrow, grief, protest in the face of violence. Recent studies of the book of Psalms over the last 20, 30 years in particular have started to see that they themselves, that the book is intentionally arranged as a lament. That the 150 Psalms themselves are kind of curated in this downward slope, but then back to joy. Now, it's like our life, it's not a a perfect down and a perfect up. It's a little up and then a little down, a little bit up and a little bit down, a little bit down, 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 but it's overall and up and to the right trajectory through the Psalms. And lament Psalms, Walter Brueggemann says, typically begin in a place of orientation, move through segments of disorientation, and then leave us in a place of reorientation. One of the, the stakes in the ground of our ministry is constantly reminding you that you are allowed to be angry with God. And can I just offer that if you are under 40, you're fine with that, and if you're over 40, that's like a stumbling block for you. Because when I pastor people of those generations that they say, I know I'm not supposed to be angry with God, who told you that? Certainly not the Bible. There is a value that God places on our honesty in prayer. And when we don't know how to pray in the midst of our grief, God gives us the lament psalms to teach us. He literally says, here are words to use. Here, here are words to pray so that you can go on a journey of radical reorientation. And so we pray the lament psalms. Um, this is just a sampling. Uh, Psalm 3, 6, 13, 22, 25, 28, 31, 44, 56, 57, 71, 77, 81, 86, 88. Usually by about 88, it starts moving back upwards because 88 ends with Darkness is my only friend. Don't hear that in a worship song too much, do we? Or do we, when the night is holding on to me, God is holding on. This is an example, Psalm 31, 9 and 10. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am in distress. Tears blur my eyes. My body and soul are withering away. I am dying from grief, and my years are shortened by sadness. That is how grief feels. That right there. It's in your body, it's in your heart. That is how grief feels. When we pray the lament psalms 
in our grief. We enter the company of God's people who are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. When we pray the lament psalms, we learn to sing a song of victory and joy in a minor key. And today, my friends, Jesus is the healer. And he can't help but move toward your grief. He can't help but see you. He can't help but to have compassion on you. He can't help not to be angry with you, alongside of you. Not angry at you, but with you. He can't help but to weep. Because death is a monster. Here at Regen, we do response time each week because we don't want to just hear God's word. We don't want to kind of just leave maybe in this unsettled place, but we want to um, kind of hear him speaking to us and how does he want to kind of minister to us today. And so my, my first, for those of you in the room who are grieving, for those of you who this is touching a really sensitive spot, a few weeks ago I was walking through something really hard and a friend said to me, what does Jesus want to do right now? Like when you pray about it, what is he asking? And I was like, I, I don't know if I can hear that. But as I, I prayed, I started to kind of have a sense of what he wanted to speak over me. And so even if it feels like it's so cloudy and it's so foggy and I'm so stuck in this, ask him today just to, to speak through that, to kind of cut through that. Like, Father, what are you saying to me today? What is the good news you have for me today? If you're someone who's, you know what, I'm not in a season of grieving. I've walked through grief. I've had hard times, but this is not that moment. Then I would invite you to kind of be praying, Father, who are you asking me to move closer to? Who in my life is grieving and needs me to be the hands and feet of Jesus, the person who just sits and listens and prays and brings coffee and is just present with? So let's just um, let's take a moment and kind of ask the Father to, to speak over that. Father, I pray over those who are grieving today. I pray that, kind of have this picture of your voice that's like crystal clear with kindness, that it would pierce through the fog of grief, that they would hear your voice today as you speak truth over them, as you speak hope and healing over them. Father, for those who you, you kind of keep nudging toward pursuing healing, I pray that you would give them the courage and the boldness to take whatever step that is, to seek a counselor, to pursue inner healing, to, to get prayer. 
Father, would you walk with them as they do that? Would you give them the courage to face those things? Father, for those um, amongst us who are, are not in a season of grieving, we thank you for that. We thank you for the seasons of joy and the seasons of celebration and just the seasons of peace that you give us. I pray that for those walking in that season, that you would give them eyes to see who around them needs the hands and feet of Jesus, who needs someone just to sit and to be present. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak that over them today. Father, I pray as a spiritual family that we would be a safe place for those who are grieving. I pray that we would be a place that entertains questions and anger and doubts and grief, but that consistently points to the truth of who you are, that with compassion and with kindness and with joy says, Jesus is still worth it. He's always worth it. And Father, for those today who haven't even decided if you're worth it, I pray that you would move in their hearts and in their minds today and that they would see you for who you are and that they would accept the hope that you want to offer them for all of eternity. So we ask these things in your name. Amen.